They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig. This is my husband, Matt. Hi, everyone. You know, guys, sometimes math can be good, and sometimes math can be used for evil. Uh, today, we're going to have mainly a solo cast. I'm just uh, getting you started here. I need help with the intro. Well, and also, I just got back from a big reporting trip, so I got a lot of work to do. Uh, but we wanted to get you some fresh, hot, new content. And, uh, and Matt's got some, uh, some things to say about when measurements are used for evil in politics uh, and how we can fix that. You ready to go? I am ready, yes. I, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say used for evil. That, that's a little bit, that's a little harsh. Um, but, but yes, the, the theme of the episode for the diehard uh, Brunig fans on the podcast is policies that... These are sort of reforms, policy reforms, solutions to social problems that appear to solve the problem or appear to make a lot of headway on the problem, but don't really do that. And the reason why there is the misperception is because of the way that we measure the problem. Right. So I'm not saying uh, it doesn't solve the problem in some deep sense of, you know, uh, this is a Band-Aid and that sort of thing. That's an interesting point as well. But this is a very narrow issue of the way that we quantify certain kinds of harms in society, whether that's inequality or poverty or whatever, the way we quantify those things. And then the way that you can use policies that kind of game that metric in order to make it seem like you're doing a whole lot when you really aren't. And for the podcast, I'm going to focus on two of these problems and two of these programs, I guess. Um, actually, the first problem, there's, gonna, there's many problems. There's many programs that kind of go along with it. Um, but the two problems are one, poverty, two, wealth inequality, and especially racial wealth inequality. So let's, let's go into poverty. So, so what's the issue with poverty, the way that it's measured? So the way we measure poverty um, is we basically, we assign everyone in the country a certain income. And this can be done a number of ways. You can use different kind of income concepts, right? Are we including capital gains? Do we include food stamps? Um, when we are counting the income of a family, how do we think about that? Do we, do we say, oh, well, if this family has $20,000, then every person in the family should be kind of scored as having 20000 
Or do we take the 20,000 and divide it by, by four, if it's a family of four, and give each one of them 5,000? Or maybe instead of dividing it by four, we divide it by the square root of four in order to uh, take into consideration uh, the fact that larger families have economies of scale, right? So there's a lot of sort of math and judgment calls that go into uh, defining what poverty is and defining how much income each person has. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, poverty measurements are very simple. You find some way to assign everyone in the country an income, and then you define a threshold that is the poverty line, and you count everyone who has income below that poverty line as being in poverty. If you want to get a poverty rate, you take that number, you divide it by the population. There's a fairly simple skeleton framework for how to do it. The devil is in the details to some degree in what incomes you count, how you equivalize different family sizes and that sort of thing. But, but the basic gist of it is, is, pretty, is pretty simple. And the problem with the measurement is not a lot of those devil in the details issues like, well, do we count free school lunch as income? It's not even that. The problem is we count poverty using something called a head count poverty measure. And headcount sounds exactly like it uh, is exactly like it sounds. You just add up all the heads of people who are in poverty. One, two, three, four. Add up everyone who's below the poverty line. And then you say, oh, we have 45 million people living in poverty. Or if you want to do it as a percentage, obviously you divide by population. And that's like all well and good. I uh, sometimes produce figures like that. And it's, it's interesting. It's not a, it's not a like inherently defective way to communicate this concept. But the problem that the headcount poverty measurement creates is that when you go about saying, okay, I want to solve poverty, then all you need to do to solve poverty, or at least make a big dent into poverty, is to move some people over the poverty line, right? Because we're just counting heads, we're not counting how deep someone is in poverty. We're just counting the number of heads in poverty. So now think about that for a second. All right, we're doing head count poverty. We're trying to get as many people over the poverty line as we can with as little money as necessary in order to make the program seem very efficient, right? So what do I do? What do I do? I'm trying to get a lot of people over the poverty line. I don't want to spend a lot of money. How do I do that? Oh, I got it. Why don't we take the people who are just below the poverty line? Let's say the poverty line is $20,000, you know, and I've got someone here. He has $19,999. He's only $1 below the poverty line. I'll just give him $1, and now I've pulled one person out of poverty. And hell, if he's got three kids, now I've pulled four people out of poverty. One dollar, four less people in poverty. That's a big deal. If you could pull, if you could reduce the poverty number by four people for every dollar you spend, I mean, we could we could wipe this thing out in no time. And it's not just the guy who's one dollar below poverty. What about the guy who's only five hundred dollars below poverty? We could just give him five hundred dollars. Or the person who's just one thousand dollar below poverty, we could just give them one thousand dollars. So you see that the incentive that this headcount poverty measurement creates is to concentrate modest sums of money to those who are just below the poverty line. 
right? So you can just inch them over. And so you could create a program that if it bunches all the benefits to those right below the poverty line, you can get a lot of people over the line by giving them relatively modest sums of money that obviously improve their life somewhat, but don't improve it that much. And by excluding from the program very poor people who you'd have to give them a lot of money to get them over the line, right? So, you know, you could think about it sort of quantitatively like this. Like, let's say we, uh, we're going to spend $50 million to get, uh, let's say, I don't know, uh, $20, $20 billion to get everyone who is, you know, $500 away from the poverty line to get them over the line, right? And we'd say, oh, that's very effective. You know, we got, uh, you know, 5 million people over the poverty line. Oh, that's very efficient, you know. But if we took, you know, $50 billion and gave it to the poorest of the poor, you wouldn't get anyone over the poverty line because they're too far away from the poverty threshold. So $20 billion directed at those right near the poverty line gets you a, you know, a 10 million, do- a 10 million person drop in poverty. Whereas, you know, $40 billion directed at those at the poorest of the poor gets you no drop in poverty. That's how the headcount poverty measure works. It only counts as success those who you move over the line without any regard for how much you had to give them to get over the line and without any regard for those who you maybe gave a, a huge boost to their standard of living, but not enough to get them over the line. And so it's not just that this sort of theoretically creates this weird incentive where, you know, the goal is to concentrate money on those just below the poverty line. This measurement approach has actually resulted in poverty programs that work exactly like this. So the most prominent one is the Earn Income Tax Credit. And the way the Earn Income Tax Credit works is... Uh, it phases in based on how much earnings you have. So if you have no earnings, you don't get any benefit. If you have a little bit of earnings, you get some benefit. If you have a little bit more, you get even more benefit. If you have a little bit more, you get even more benefit. And until you reach this sort of threshold, this sort of plateau area where you're making, I don't, it depends on the size of the family and stuff like that, you know, thirty, dollars $40,000 a year, and then, and then the benefit sort of fades out. But so the way this structure works then is because the benefit phases in based on how much money you're earning at your job, it concentrates the benefits on those who are just around the poverty line, maybe a little bit below, maybe a little bit above. And so it records as having a huge anti-poverty effect. Um, And people, they they get hoodwinked by this over and over again. So here's the tweet. Uh, I'm not going to name the, the person, but this is a prominent person. EITC has proven over and over again to be one of the most successful ways to combat poverty in our country. And this is true if you use the headcount poverty measure. If you're only counting the people you just boot over the line, yeah, the EITC racks up a big score. But that's because it's excluding all the poorest of the poor and it's concentrating the benefits uh, of those who are just below the poverty line. And this is a really dysfunctional you know, way of doing things. Um, and, and, and there are, are alternative measures. Um, 
well, I guess before I go into alternative measures, that's to say there are other programs that work like this. The Child Independent Care Tax Credit kind of works like this, though it's a modest program. People don't talk about it too much. The Child Tax Credit is probably the second one that people talk about. They love to talk about the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Child Tax Credit. They'll bring those together and they'll say, wow, these are real anti-poverty juggernauts. Both of them exclude the poorest of the poor. And to the extent that they pay out benefits, they, don't, they pay out benefits in a way that concentrate the benefits on sort of, you know, low earning poor people, people who are, you know, near the poverty line, um, as opposed to people who are, you know, in deep poverty. But if you if you do the numbers and you use this headcount poverty measure, you go, oh, well, these are very, very successful programs. But they're really, really not. And in not only are they not successful in the sense that they're exploiting this headcount poverty measure and, and kind of overstating the impact they're having on the material well-being of the, of the recipients and of poor people in society. Um, but they're also problematic because in order to kind of get that phase-in approach, in order to kind of succeed at, at narrowly targeting those who are kind of just around the poverty line, you have to use this phase-in benefit um, strategy where you base it on how much money they earned, right? So you say, oh, for every dollar you earn, we're going to kick in 30 cents, right? And so if you've made $1, you get 30 cents of benefits. $2, you get 60 cents of benefits. $1,000, you get uh, $300 of benefits, and so on, right? You've got to kind of structure it that way. That's the only way to get the concentrated benefits where you need them in order to exploit this headcount poverty measure. But the problem with phasing in the benefits like that is that it makes it possible for employers to capture some of the benefits, right? Because think about this. If you're an employer, you know that every dollar you pay to a low-wage worker, let's say you're at Walmart or whatever, every dollar you pay to them, the government's going to kick in 30 cents, right? And so you can take advantage of that and say, well, I know that this is actually worth $1.30 to you. So maybe I'll just pay you 80 cents instead of a dollar. You're still better off than you would be if there was no benefit. I save money. It's all a win-win, except, of course, that the purpose of the, of the program was not to make it so that employers could cut wages. But that's exactly what they're able to do because of this program. And that's exactly what they probably do do, right? So it's a little bit difficult to prove these kinds of things. But you know, if you look at, for instance, Jesse Rothstein has have put out a number of papers over the year as trying to estimate this effect using various models and that sort of thing. And here, here's a line from one of his papers um, about the earned income tax credit in particular, right? Remember, the earned income tax credit, the more money you earn, the more benefit you get up to a point. And so, like I was saying, employers could substitute benefits for wages because of the way that structure works. He says, let's see, he says, the primary group targeted by the EITC, which is to say single mothers, fully 55% of the marginal EITC dollar given to this group is captured by employers through reduced wages. And single childless women lose almost exactly as much as single mothers gain, right? So that's a little bit of a complicated concept, but the, the easier thing to understand is the first one. 55% of the marginal EITC dollar that is given to single mothers is captured by employers through reduced wages. So they still benefit, right? You give a dollar to EITC benefit, the employer gets 55 cents of it through reduced wages, the worker gets 45 cents of it. And so 
you know, they're still sort of net better off, but you're losing about half the money <laughs> off to an employer in this mechanism, which is not a good, you know, not a good way, you know, to, to, to fund a benefit program where you're trying to get money to, to poor people, you're actually getting it to, to employers. But that's an unavoidable uh, outcome of the way the benefit is designed. It's the only way you can target the people right below the poverty line is to create this kind of phase-in system that employers can exploit and get extra money off of. But even then, the way that we measure the poverty uh, impact of EITC or, or child tax credit, we don't take into consideration the amount of money that the employers are getting. We just say, oh, this person made $20,000 on their own, quote-unquote, and then when we, uh, we gave them you know, $2,000 of earned income tax credit, so now they made twenty two grand. that pushed them over the poverty line, therefore uh, we helped them by, by two grand. But realistically, the two grand is you know, after the employer has reduced their wages. So like if you took away the two grand, instead of them making $20,000, they would have made 21,000. And so it's still nice that they're making 22,000, but like the 2,000 you gave them wasn't on top of 20 grand. It was on top of 21 grand where the employer took half of it and the, and the employee got to benefit from half of it. So the measurement misses that. It misses the degree to which the benefit is just depressing worker wages and that the employer is actually, actually capturing the incidence of it. So, you know, this is a, I would say, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real issue. Um, and, and it really, really distorts the way people think about policymaking. Now, there is an alternative way to do this, and perhaps I should start publishing um, this measure more consistently, um, but it's called the poverty gap, right? And so the idea of a poverty gap is instead of just adding up the number of people who are in poverty, what you do is you add up the amount by which all the poor people are in poverty, right? So you could think about if there are 45 million people in poverty, you know, one person is only a dollar in poverty, so we just put a dollar in the spreadsheet. Um, another person is a thousand dollars in poverty, so we put a thousand dollars in the spreadsheet. So now we have a thousand and one, right? Another person is just twenty five hundred dollars in poverty, so we put that in. So now we have one dollar, a thousand dollars, twenty five hundred dollars, and you just do this for every single person in poverty, and you add it up, and you get a dollar total at the end, and you say that's the poverty gap. That is the amount by which all the poor people are in poverty. That's that's sort of the the distance. You know, sort of if if we could perfectly target all the money, that's exactly the amount of money you would need to pull them all above poverty. And so if you use that measure, then you, you start to see how that measure negates the strategies people use to kind of game the statistic. Because under that measure, if you give a dollar to a guy who's one dollar below poverty, that's as valuable as giving a dollar to someone who is, you know, in deep, deep, deep poverty, right? In both cases, the poverty gap which is defined as all the money by which people are below poverty, the poverty gap both goes down by a dollar, right? And then if we go back to that scenario where, well, maybe we could concentrate $20 billion of those just below the poverty line to get them over it, and we count that under the headcount poverty, we count that as being really effective. But if we put $40 billion on those in deep poverty, under the headcount poverty, that's counted as no, no effect whatsoever because no one gets over the poverty line. Under the poverty gap measure it gets counted correctly. The $40 billion reduces poverty by $40 billion, even though it only goes to those who are in deep poverty, none of whom get above the threshold of the poverty line. 
and the $20 billion only reduces poverty by $20 billion. In fact, probably a little bit less because some of the people who are moved over the poverty line, they, you know, they may have been only $1,000 below the poverty line, but they got $2,000 from the program, let's say. So a thousand of that doesn't get counted towards the poverty gap. So that would be a more effective way of measuring poverty. Say we got this bucket, basically this dollar bucket that we need to fill up and how much are our welfare programs filling it up? As opposed to saying we have these people in poverty and how many of them are being moved from below the threshold to above the threshold. The poverty gap measure uh, is sort of agnostic about who you target in poverty and allows you to target all sorts of people, allows you to bring people maybe out of deep poverty into mere poverty, allows you to count all those really beneficial programs as being very effective at poverty reduction, whereas the headcount poverty uh, measure only lets you really count those programs that target those who are just around the poverty line, um, which is, you know, really, really ineffective if our goal is to end material deprivation as opposed to gaming this poverty statistic, right? So that's a, it's a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. I think people get sucked into earned income tax credit a lot. I think a lot of pundits get sucked into it because, you know, you'll have someone like the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which puts out really good stuff. It's one of the best, best sort of just facts and figures, think tanks in the game. You'll have them put out these papers about how much EITC reduces poverty and that sort of thing. And you'll have journalists who even sort of are more wonky, if you will, you know, which is a bit more of a, it's kind of a posturing more than it is, uh, you know, an accurate depiction necessarily of their level of, of understanding of these things. But, but even you'll have those people be like, well, I read this white paper from CBPP and they're like, they think they're like being real wonky, but they're, they're kind of being suckered a little bit. It's like, oh, this white paper from CBPP says that uh, EITC is actually more effective than food stamps at pop bubble. And it's like, that's not really true. It's true based on this stupid measurement where we just count heads. But if you, if you add up, you know, the, the, the actual sort of reduction in material depriva- deprivation, EITC is not more effective than even things like food stamps or Medicaid or WIC, these things which score as moving relatively few people above poverty line because they're, they're so focused on, on, on those who are in the deepest level of need. So watch out for that. Don't let people get you suckered into that. Uh, the people who get suckered into that get very interested in tax credits. I think Sherrod Brown, who, who, who I think, you know, he's a good guy for the most part. I don't, I don't have any like ill beef towards him, but he was recently quoted as saying the election is going to be the, the, the 2020 election or the, the new, the democratic primary coming that the most important thing is going to be tax credits. It's like, Oh God, no. I mean, not only is that uninspiring, but it's just wrong headed. It's based on a mismatch. It's based on a measurement problem, a measurement quirk that everyone is has sort of lost sight of. Um, so, you know, like I said, be careful when you're dealing with poverty. Make sure you're using the right measurement. Make sure you're using programs that you know. I mean, just be intuitive about it. Wait a minute, moving someone just above the poverty line that doesn't seem to do a whole lot, but giving a whole bunch of money to people who are very poor. That seems that seems to be sort of what I'm after, you know, and, and don't let measurement quirks and things like that get you uh, get you off on the wrong page on that. So so that's poverty. That's poverty. That's an interesting one. I think that one is a, is is in some ways more intuitive and, and kind of easy for people to understand. But I'm going to move now to the second one, which is wealth inequality and in particular racial wealth inequality. So we have this concept 
uh, and I wrote a piece about this at peoplespolicyproject.org recently, we had this concept called the racial wealth gap. And the way the racial wealth gap is usually defined is you find the median white wealth, right? So the 50th percent, so half of white families, and this is all done on the family level. It's not done on the individual level. So you'll take a family unit and you'll find their net worth, right? So you, f you find the median white wealth where half of white people have lower net worths and half of white people have higher net worths. You'll take that median white wealth and you'll compare it to the median black wealth. And if you do that, in 2016, which is the latest uh, d uh, figures we have, uh, the median white wealth is about 163,000, right? And the median black wealth is around 17,000. So we have 163 for white, 17 for black. It's about $146,000 difference, right? And people say that's the racial wealth gap, 146,000. Boom, right? Median to median. We compare the 50th percentile white to the 50th percentile black. Science, we're doing science here. That's the racial wealth gap, quantified. It's beautiful. Let's close that gap. And that is like fine, I guess, in general. Like I don't oppose, you know, comparing medians to medians, but it ends up being very deceptive in the case of the racial wealth gap and very deceptive in, in, in the way that it, it's kind of weird because it, it, it way understates the racial wealth gap, right? You would think advocates who, who are like, you know, really trying to push the racial wealth gap and so on, they would pick the statistic that most highlighted like how big the gap is, you know, like you always have an, a choice. Oh, I could use median. I could use mean. I could use, I could adjust for age. I could adjust, you know, there's all sorts of things you could do. And normally, you, you know, activists and advocates, you'd think they're going to pick the one that shows the biggest racial wealth gap. But in fact, they picked this median racial wealth gap, which is way smaller than what I think of as a more comprehensive measure of the racial wealth gap. And the, the more comprehensive version of the racial wealth gap is mean wealth, right? So you just add up all the white wealth and you divide it by the number of white families. You add up all the black wealth and you divide it by the number of black families, right? That gets you the average. When you do that, the average white family has 900,000 and the average black family has 140,000. So now we're talking about a gap of around 760, not 146. At the median, the gap between blacks and whites is 146,000. At the mean or the average, it's 760,000 per family, right? So that's, a, that's a quite a big leap. And what it shows you is just how concentrated wealth is in both groups at the very top of those groups, right? I mean, think about it. If average wealth, if the, if the amount of wealth per family among white people is 900 grand, but the median wealth is only 160, that means all of that wealth is really concentrated at the top of the white distribution. And so when you're comparing median white wealth to median black wealth, like the racial wealth gap does, what you're really comparing are two groups of people, the median white family and the median black family, or you know the middle quintile, if you will, people around the median. What you're really doing is comparing two groups of people who own almost none of the wealth of their racial group, right? So if we take the, for instance, the median quintile, which is sort of the middle fifth of white families, we say, all right, let's add up all the wealth of the middle fifth of white families. Let's add it up and let's divide it by total white wealth, 
right? And that'll tell us what percent, the, the middle fifth of white families, what percent of white wealth do they own? This, you know, the middle class, if you will. What percent of total white wealth do they own? And the answer is 3.7%. The middle class of white families, they only own 3.7% of white wealth. Meaning, by the way, that lower class, they own even less than that. The bottom 40% of white families own even less than that. They own basically none of the white wealth. And then for black families, if you do the same thing, the middle class black families, the middle quintile, the middle fifth of black families, they own only 2.8% of black wealth, right? So think about this for a second. We're trying to close the racial wealth gap, quote unquote, by, by using a measurement in which we compare the median black family to the median white family, even though the median white family owns almost none of the white wealth. And the median black family owns almost none of the black wealth, right? So, so what this racial wealth gap measure does is it primes you to think that we will have solved the racial wealth gap problem when we take these two families who own virtually nothing, you know, I mean, uh, 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 relative to the whole pie, own virtually nothing, when we take these two families and we, we bring them to parity, right? That closes the racial wealth gap. If you, if you have these two <laughs> median families who own the same amount of virtually nothing, the racial wealth gap will be closed, right? And that just, that just is, is contra to, uh, <laughs> to you know, any sort of holistic or intuitive sense of what we're trying to do with closing the racial wealth gap, right? Like, if you think about it sort of intuitively, what we're trying to do when we're closing the racial wealth gap is not bring the median black family to the median white family, bring them to parity and that sort of thing. We're trying to make it so that the black community has as much wealth as the white community, you know, adjusted for population size. That's what we're trying to do, right? And so, if you, if you, kind of go, so, so what happens then, I guess, is a, is a better question. What happens when we get hung up on the median wealth, when we, when we use this measurement quirk, this, this phantom bullshit measurement that is similar to the poverty line measurement, the headcount poverty measurement we are talking before? What happens when you do that? And what happens is the policy incentive, when you say that's your target, your target is to bring median black family and median white family so that they, they have the same amount of dollars, right? That's your goal. What happens as a policy matter, if you tell a policy person to maximize that, to get to that goal, to hit that number, is they end up proposing things that disproportionately provide transfers to the median black family in order to bring them up to the median white family, right? And so this, this becomes kind of somewhat easy if you think about it, because the median black family has 17 grand, the median white family has 163 grand. So you can imagine a proposal which basically says, uh, we're going to create a means-tested system of, of wealth grants where if you have less than $20,000 of wealth, we're going to give you 50 grand. If you have less than $50,000 of wealth, right, so between 20 and 50,000, we'll give you 25 grand. If you have you know, between 50 grand and 100 grand of wealth, we'll give you 10 grand. And if you have over 100 grand of wealth, we'll give you five grand, right? So in that case, if you think about it, the median white family, which has over 100 grand of wealth, they're only going to get $5,000 from that. And the median black family, which has less than $20,000 wealth, they're going to get 50 grand, 
right? So, so the median black family's wealth increases by 50 grand, and the median white family's wealth only increases by five grand. So you shrunk the gap by 45 grand, right? But if all you're doing is giving some money to these median families, you're really not shrinking the overall wealth gap. Like the amount of capital that is available in the two communities is basically unchanged. I mean, it's a little bit better, but it's really unchanged. And, and the only reason this appears to close the racial wealth gap by so much, by 45 grand, by, 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 by more than a third, the reason why it seems to close the racial wealth gap so much is because you're focusing on median to median, even though that's not where the wealth is. Wealth is not located at the middle of the distribution. It's located at the very, very top. And so the program I've just described, by the way, the one where we're talking about means-tested wealth grants in order to close the median racial wealth gap, that is the baby bonds program. That's the program that promoted mostly, I think, by uh, Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton, but picked up more recently by Cory Booker, is the baby bonds program. And the idea there is that you're going to give means-tested grants, they say to babies, but really it's to 18-year-olds. And if you means-test it in just the right way, you can kind of get the median black family very close to the median white family. And, and if you do the math on this, like, it's true. You can get them pretty close without using that much money. But like I said, this is a measurement quirk. And here's how you can know it's a measurement quirk. Without doing all of the distributional math and pulling out, you know, R or Stato or, you know, whatever statistical package you have, uh, the way you can know that it's kind of a, 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 a bit of a trick that they're taking advantage of the way we measure the racial wealth gap is by doing a very simple analysis here, right? You say, what would it take to make it to where black families as a whole, the black community as a whole, has as much wealth as white families as a whole, adjusted for their different population sizes, right? There are way fewer black people in the U.S. than there are white, white people. So, so per capita, wealth what would it take to get per capita black wealth to equal per capita white wealth how much money would that take in aggregate if you do the math and the answer there i've done the math using the survey of consumer finances it's about 15 trillion dollars that is the total gap that is the aggregate gap that's how much money if you weren't touching white wealth and you were just pouring money into the black community that's how much money you would need to pour into the black community 15 trillion dollars in order to make it to where it was on par with the white community in terms of aggregate, in terms of per capita wealth, you know, total wealth adjusted for, adjusted for the population sizes of the two groups, right? $15 trillion. That's the gap in total. It's not 140 grand. That's the gap between the median family and the median black family. It's 15 trillion. That's the gap between the white community and the black community overall, 15 trillion. So how big is this baby bonds program then? How much money is going to go out in the baby bonds program each year, right? We have a $15 trillion gap. So how much money is the baby bonds going to go, or is the baby bonds program, how much money is it going to throw into that gap in order to close it? And the answer, based on the estimates of the people who advocate it, is $80 billion a year. And that's $80 billion a year that's not going exclusively to black families. 
right? It's a means tested. It disproportionately goes to black families, but it's also going to Latino families. It's also going to Asian families. It's also going to white families. I haven't done the math on this, but I, I would suspect that black families actually get a minority of the $80 billion because they're, they're only 13% of the population, right? And so even though they get a disproportionate amount of it, they probably get a minority of the funds, so let's suppose they get half of it, which I think is, uh, which I think is a bit, you know, uh, uh, aggressive <laughs> in terms of estimates. Let's say they get half of it. So, uh, and let's suppose the other half didn't exist at all somehow, right? So in that case, instead of eighty billion dollars of race-neutral grants, you have forty billion dollars only going to the black community, right? And this is an overestimate of the actual effect of the program, right? Well, think about it. The gap's fifteen trillion and you're putting 40 billion a year into it? Hell, let's even s suppose that the 80 billion, which is the price for the whole program, which again is a race neutral program that's gonna provide benefits to all the racial groups. Let's suppose all 80 billion of that was just going to black families, right? Well, we have a gap of 15 trillion and we have a program that provides 80 billion a year, right? I mean, it doesn't take a, a, a rocket science here, a science scientist here to realize that, I mean, just do 15 trillion divided by 80 billion. That's 187 and a half, right? So it would take you 187 years if all 80 billion of that baby bond money was just going to black families. It would take you 187 years to bring the white community and the black community together at par in terms of the amount of wealth that they owned. 187 years. And that's assuming that white wealth doesn't increase at all over that 187 years, which, of course, we know that it will because wealth accumulates year over year over year. So, you know, this is not meant to be negative on the baby bonds program. Unlike the EITC or the child tax credit, unlike those programs, which I actually do think are kind of, I don't know, they're, they're sort of actively harmful. Like there are other programs that clearly are better suited clearly are better suited in the way that they're designed than those programs baby bonds it's like it's fine it's a it's a fine program it's it's good but it's it's a small program right the w white black racial graphs 15 trillion baby bonds 80 billion not all of which is going to black families it's just not going to come anywhere close to closing the gap but because we measure the gap as white median to black median, you can get relatively big reductions from that. Right? You can bring the black median family much closer to the white median family. You can do that with really small amounts of money. I mean, 80 billion is, is, is fine, you know, to, to, to achieve that goal. But that, that doesn't really achieve the goal, right? We, we want to create a world, you know, in theory, in which, you know, the black community is as, as wealthy and has as much capital as its disposal, at its disposal as, as the black community or as the white community. And, and just inching the medians together with this kind of cleverly designed program that takes advantage of the fact that we measure the racial wealth gap in a little bit of a, a bullshit way, um, that doesn't get you there. But it convinces a lot of people that you get there, right? Because people don't know. They're like, oh, the racial wealth gap. These are scientists. These are mathematicians. They understand what's going on. If they say it closes the gap, then it closes the gap. And hey, here's this graph. Look, the graph shows that the white bar gets a lot closer to the black bar. Oh, there you go. And it's like, no, no, no. It's all mismeasurement all the way down. Right? And so an example of people kind of mixing, missing the boat on, on, on this and misconstruing how effective programs like baby bonds 
can be is there was a piece by Dylan Matthews recently. Now, I, I like Dylan Matthews a lot. I think he's one of the smartest, smartest guys in the game. But he got a little, I would say, a little suckered by this because he wrote a piece say that was titled, Cory Booker's baby bonds nearly closed the racial wealth gap for young adults. And it's the same issue, right? He goes, well, if you, if you compare the median black 18 to 25-year-old and the median white 18 to 25-year-old and you apply this program, then instead of the gap being, you know, uh, 16 times, it's, it goes down to 1.4 times. And ha, there you go. Wow, we're really making headway. And it's like, you're really not. You're really not making headway. I mean, you know, it's good. Like, it's not a bad outcome, but it's that's just not where the wealth is. And 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 they actually kind of juice it up a little bit more there because they compare eighteen to twenty-five year old white families to eighteen to twenty-five year old black families. But like eighteen to twenty-five year olds own basically none of the wealth either, right? Eighteen to twenty-five year olds in the United States own less than one percent of the total wealth of the country. Less than 1% is owned by 18 to 25-year-olds. Many of them have zero uh, wealth or they have negative wealth because they're dealing with student debt. They own less than 1% of the national wealth. And then the middle fifth of 18 to 25-year-olds, which is where these baby bonds are being concentrated, that like median quintile, they only own 2.4% of youth wealth. So, so 18 to 25-year-olds own less than 1% of the national wealth, and then the like middle-class 18 to 25-year-olds own less than 3% of that wealth. They own less than 3% of the less than 1%. And baby bonds, because it's so cleverly designed, brings middle-class young black families and middle-class young white families, it brings their wealth very close together. Um, and so you can produce these very eye-popping statistics like my god we're almost closing the racial wealth gap but like you're not my god you're not even coming anywhere close this is the gap's 15 trillion you're only pouring 80 billion of race neutral grants in it the only reason you think you're closing it is because you're limiting the comparison to 18 to 25 year olds and then from there limiting the comparison to median 18 to 25 year olds if you go look at where the wealth is which is not among young people and, 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 and among young people, it's at the richest uh, edge of young people. If you go look at where that wealth is, huge gap still remains between blacks and whites, both among young um, uh, uh, cohorts and among the overall population. So, like I said, I don't, I don't want to, I want to like shit on the program too much. It's not, it's not like a, it's not a repugnant program in the same way that the EITC kind of, and the CTC, the Earned Income Tax Credit and Child Tax Credit, kind of actively repulse me. Um, the baby bond says it's not repulsive to me, uh, to me at all, really. But um, I mean, it can be designed poorly. But the general concept is not repulsive. Um, but you know, it doesn't really do what it's trying to do. It doesn't fix the evil we're trying to fix. And that that that's the same with the headcount poverty, right? With headcount poverty, we're trying to eliminate material deprivation. We're trying to eliminate insecurity. We're trying to make it to where people have security in their home, in their food, in their health, and in, in these kinds of things. And little tricks to move people just below the poverty line, just above it, doesn't really get you there, right? You've, you're not really addressing the evil. You're just using a trick of the way the statistic is defined to rack up big numbers in spreadsheets. That's it. You're not really fixing material deprivation. And then the same for the racial wealth gap. 
right? What we're trying to do is make sure each community has a similar amount of capital, similar amount of wealth. We're trying to bring the two groups into parity. And using the fact that we compare median to median and just kind of exploiting that so that you inch the black median up a little bit in order to get the gap closed as it's defined statistically, it's not really addressing that evil, right? I mean, a little bit. It, it does a little bit address the evil, but it doesn't come anywhere close to closing the gap, even though that measurement would suggest that you've, you've, you've closed it by 40, 50, 60% or something when you've you're nowhere close to closing it by that much. Um, I mean, it's a drop in the ocean. Like I said, 187 years it would take with a program of that size to close the overall racial wealth gap. And that's assuming 80 bi- all $80 billion went to black families and that white wealth didn't increase at all, both of which are false assumptions. Um, so, you know, that's basically the gist of it. I, I won't go on too long, 45 minutes of me <laughs> talking about uh, measurement quirks. Uh, I don't know, may, may or may not be interesting to people, but these are things that, that are really important and that, and that do drive a lot of discourse. Even among people who are pretty smart and pretty sophisticated journalists, they get they get tricked by this. And in many ways, there's no other way, there's there's no way for people, there's no source that's telling you that this is bullshit, right? Because the think tanks are kind of, they're kind of in on it, right? Like, they're smart people. They know that it's a little bit bullshitty here and there. Um, but they're trying to promote a policy. They're trying to get, you know, it's all about politics. It's about getting the thing recognized, getting people interested in it, that sort of thing. And so they, they, they play around with this a little bit. Some of them also get tricked by the statistic, right? It's very easy if, you don't, if you're not thinking hard about it to just, to just take a statistic for granted, take a measurement for granted, take a metric for, me- for granted and think that that's like the real thing. You're really capturing the underlying phenomenon, the underlying evil that we're trying to fix. It's real easy to get suckered in by that. And it's even easier to, if you're not suckered in by that, to use the fact that that's a popular measurement that you can kind of get people excited about, get journalists excited about, get politicians excited about. And then finally, it's it's there's a, there's a cynical way in which you, you can use these measures to uh, promote modest policies, you know, centrist bullshit policies that don't really solve the problem, but you can make them look big. And like, you know, obviously the center is always trying to make it seem like they're accomplishing big, beautiful things with their little tweaks when, when uh, you know, I mean, just on its face, you're not going to accomplish big, beautiful things with little tweaks. Like that's the nature of, of tweaks being little is that they don't have big magnitudes. Um, but you know, so there's an incentive there. So, so the hope, hopefully the, the, the listeners of the, of the brew podcast, uh, w- will be inoculated against, against some of this bullshit. Um, in the future, and, and, and th- these things are going to become, I think, really relevant as we move into the presidential election, where you're going to see a lot of people who are taking advantage of these sort of measurement quirks, these sort of statistical games to make it seem like they have these bold policies that can really achieve a lot, even though they don't seem to cost very much. And, you know, to the extent that y- y- you have a hunch that that doesn't make sense, uh, almost always that hunch is true. You're not going to get a whole lot done with very little money. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so, so there you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, we're going to have a, 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 you know, a team podcast here uh, in a second. I just kind of wanted to get that off my chest, and and I felt like the the rant. <laughs> the, the rant monologue was a better format than uh, than making my my poor wife sit through this. So, uh, thanks for listening. 
and uh you know keep on keeping on